You're listening to Circle of Hope Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. I want to talk about appetites. And um, appetites can be really good, right? Like we love it when babies eat. I love it when Bob... You remember when Bob Ross would feed baby squirrels? Okay. If you're not... I didn't think anybody loved it as, as much as me. I love when Bob Ross would feed those baby squirrels, bring them on the show. But, um, and sometimes little ones have trouble learning this, this basic skill. They have some kind of appetite, but learning how to, how to do something healthy about it is difficult. And I think even as an adults, we probably learn more easily about appetites in terms of like we know what they are or what we want more than we know how to get it or what's even good for us. But when babies start to, to gain a ton of weight, even um, some people say, you know, he, these huge babies, we compliment them, right? We say, like, no, that's a baby with a good appetite, you know? And um, one cannot really continue that trajectory for the rest of their life, uh, that cell multiplication rate, or even just, like, being praised for having such a good appetite unless you're, you know, eating at my grandmother's house, which the appetite, you know, do you have a grandmother like that or did you? Whatever you ate, it's not really good enough, you should have a bigger one. Even goldfish eventually slow their growth rate. You know, like most fish don't stop growing ever. Okay, most fish keep growing but they don't grow at the same rate. Like you ever see catfish, you know, that are like normal size and then the ones in the Amazon on TV are like 10 feet long, weigh 5,000 pounds. That's a, has to do with the relationship with their environment and they get us, you know, we're the fish tank and they, they grow some kind of symbiosis with it, but they don't even continue the same rate. And appetites can be learned or trained like an acquired taste. The, uh, the Tato company in Ireland made these crisps. In, in the 1950s is when they first started flavoring them. One of the first flavors was salt and vinegar. Now, until I had lived in Philadelphia for probably, I don't even know, more than five years, did I ever have or hear of salt and vinegar chips, let alone did I like them the first time I ate them. If you're not from here, salt and vinegar chips are probably an acquired taste. Have you just... Random poll, salt and vinegar trips. Does anybody uh, think, okay, a couple people are like, nah. Anybody else nah on the salt and vinegar? I, I don't really like them. I'll just put it, put it out there, Kent, me and you. Does anybody like think like they're okay? They taste just like every other chip. Zero. It's, it, it's the, that's the kind of, that's the power of salt and vinegar. Anyway, acquiring taste. If left unchecked our appetites can even lead us around. And, and it could be just this appetite for attention or a certain kind of attention that could just make us craving it all the time so much that say we're craving uh, the kind of attention that a potential romantic encounter gives you. And that could be the thing that we want most of all and are obsessed about so much that even when we're talking to another person, we can't help but just scan or look at our phones, scanning. Scanning for this, this is what drives our life. It might be the, the kind of appetite that, uh, that preoccupies us. Our appetite for entertainment 
can even lead us easily to organizing our lives around entertainment. Most people, just so you know, if you ask them, does entertainment rule your life? No. Right? Just flat out. We don't let it. And if you ask most people how much Netflix do you watch every day, we say, I don't even watch it every day. So I couldn't tell you. Probably, you know, a couple times a week, watch a little show here and there. If I'm sick, I watch a little bit more. Well, when they released their numbers in 2015, Time Magazine said the average user account. So not even like the whole thing, but the, the little, like my Netflix has like five users, you know. Average person is over 90 minutes a day streaming that stuff. So I know you fell asleep watching Bob Chill with Bob Ross and it went all night and that's what inflated the stats, of course. But the, this, this appetite even for entertainment not only can, can guide our life to, to the point where 90 minutes a day, most of us maybe don't do 90 minutes a day of the things that we think are most important in life, let alone it just kind of streams along. This Lent journey is a solidarity with Jesus journey, trying to connect to his sufferings. And, and we, it's set while he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. And as we take a look at a piece from that story each week, we'll consider what we need to resist. Lent as a resistance practice. The external forces, as well as some internal dilemmas. As we walk with Jesus and his sufferings, we're hoping that we can be more conscious of Jesus walking with us through ours. So today we're going to read this, the whole story of the, the Matthew account of Jesus in the wilderness, which is really not that long. And then each week we're really just going to focus on a tiny little tiny little bit. So this is in Matthew 4. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it's, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, God will command the angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up so that you do not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put your Lord God to the test. And then the devil took him to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve God only. And then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. I hope that you've heard that story before at some level or are kind of familiar with it. But tonight we're just looking at this first bit, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. We're beginning, just consider Jesus' hunger. I don't think that we should think that Lent is a good time to just jump into a no-food-for-40-days situation while you sit in unfamiliar wilderness. I know a couple of people who have worked up to the point where they're not going to eat any food for 40 days as part of like a strike or something. Just as like a, if you are thinking about trying that, you will not be able to work if you don't eat. Like you, you won't be able to continue your normal life. The pace that you live right now, and I'm making a generalization just looking at you, you need food. 
most of us, if you do that for 40 days, you get fired or, you know, you're, you got to feed the baby or whatever. Like you got stuff you got to do. You can't just sit in the woods for 40 days. Um, this was, Jesus was not just um, doing it willy nilly, but he was stepping into the symbolic mythical space also in 40 days, 40 nights. The people that are hearing this story for the first time, especially those from the Jewish background, you know, even the number 40 just sets off multiple occasions in the, in the Hebrew Bible that would remind them of like when Noah's family is on the ark with the, all the remaining land animals and it rained for 40 days, 40 nights. Moses has like five or six different 40 days or 40 years things. Um, Goliath taunts the people of Israel for 40 days before David goes out to vanquish him. But Jesus was hungry, and he actually felt it in his body. So does that hunger put him in a place where he's hearing God more clearly? If that was the, the point, which most of us, I think, when we want to fast, we're hoping to like hear from God. In this narrative, anyway, Jesus doesn't hear a lot from God. That wasn't even like the express purpose of going out there, but it was to be tempted it was to, to feel the lack and really get a hold of the hunger and really get a hold of the temptation, not just his personal stuff, but all of those, you know, illustrations are, you know, laden with symbolism and theology. Is he just making space for God to fill? Or is this, does this withholding just make him entitled to that when he finishes and he gets a really good reward? Is it just about trying hard and doing well and getting some kind of accolades by the end of it? Jesus used it as this opportunity to restore the, the dreaming of his whole people, to be able to, to help us to imagine what these kinds of uh, journeys could be. It was more than just for himself. I like how Rachel even started us off with about fasting that can help us, but also fasting that, that connects other people, and it's for more than for just us. And your fasts, if you're choosing to do some kind of thing during Lent, it has impacts beyond you. Um, and I hope tonight is a chance to just consider them a little bit. Um, but what kind of impacts are you hoping for or are you even asking for from God? There's a couple levels that I want to kind of take this at. One of them is, is the, the personal. And I want to use hunger as a, or appetites to think about at a few different levels, right? So there's the hunger that you've experienced, primarily food or what kind of drinks you like, that kind of, that kind of stuff that's, I think, pretty normal. Then the other kind of hunger, thirst that we're going to touch a little bit is that that healthy hunger and thirst for righteousness or the hunger and thirst for justice, this kind of hunger and thirst for God's harmony to be restored, this hunger and thirst for, for good, healthy connection. And also there's the, the hunger and thirst for the, the stuff that um, is a little bit harder to define. For instance, um, having idealistic demands in your relationships. For those of you who are uh, traveling through the world with a partner right now, in a committed love relationship, how much does your idealism, your demands for what you want them to be, 
does that appetite, how much does that appetite for your, in your idealism shape your relating? Like how many times a day must you remind them that they are falling short of your expectations? And if you don't remind them, does it happen internally? For me, it happens a lot. So I, I don't mean to say this, like you're probably doing this, but I figured it out. No, this is a problem, like, every day. And Martha's pretty good. Um, I, but, the, but yet, my unreasonable idealism on her, against even how good she is, you know, the idealism is greater, right? My sense of, or even what I really want her to be able to provide for me. And it can come down to just small interactions when it, when it becomes most obvious. The big asks, yeah, yeah, that's obvious too. But it's in the, the tiny interactions I think we find out where those um, unspoken huge expectations or demands, and they usually are coming out of um, a place of shame or just bringing shaming messages that, that hit somebody in their unhealthy zones. How perfect do our friends need to be? How perfect does this meeting need to be for you to have a good time or for you to connect with God? I think that's one of the greatest disciplines of getting together every Sunday is not just, hey, isn't this cool that it's a, we're doing something that's an expression? I do like that. Or I really like that it happens at a regular time so somebody who maybe hasn't been here before can find it and we didn't just sort of occur at the riverbank or something, even though I think that would be like a cooler way to do it. But, you know, we, we do this for a purpose. But one of the, the greatest things is for me, anyway, using it, is to just have my idealism smacked in the face by opportunity to actually connect. Because what, what is it going to be? What am I going to use it for? Can I use the limited contributions of people in this room, of the temperature of the room actually is, with those guitar tones, with the singing that I'm hearing, can this be an opportunity for me to connect with God, or do the words need to be better? Does the song need to be sung better? Do, do I need to have a better voice? Does people need to be able to clap better? Or what? I don't know what your problem is. I'm just going to tell you what some of mine are. But what, what actually is leading us around? And is it just like when, the, when Paul is locked up, he writes his, his best works, like when he's writing to the church in Philippi, and he's just saying, some people are really missing it here. And the most important thing, the most important thing to them is, is the hope that they will feel satiated. Their God is their belly. They just really want things. They really want what they want. And I think at some level, hunger can become our teacher. Even wondering, do we have to satisfy all of them and leaving it open sometimes? But I think a lot of our appetites are actually out of some place that's healthy, normal, and good. And we learned some behaviors. We learned we got some, you know, incoherent and unhelpful messaging. We got indoctrinated into different kinds of systems of relating that make us make our appetites get kind of weird. Like most little kids I know, for instance, don't like vegetables. My kids didn't like most vegetables. That was like embarrassing for me. You know what they did like? Chicken fingers and french fries. Almost every kid I've ever met likes chicken fingers and french fries. They're not that good. Or, or I mean... If I'm going to be totally honest, my most embarrassing thing was, like, how much they liked chicken nuggets from McDonald's. And I was like, look, dudes, this isn't even good chicken nuggets. 
I mean, there's so many levels to the problem with this appetite. And how could it ever um, just show that, like, wow, we want nutrients, we want to enjoy what we're eating, yet we, we took that and moved it towards this fake stuff that, um, that doesn't actually make us feel better. Unless you're, like, super addicted to, like, corn sugar, for instance, right? Then you get a little bit of it, then you're back to normal, right? Then you dip a little bit. Right, you get that sugar in it, and you're like, "Oh, okay, I'm better." I'm, be I'm like any um, addiction. But I wonder, you know, how we can allow God to transform our sense of hunger into this healthy appetite for healthy, nourishing things that build harmony and build community, that build trust, that build intimacy. We don't just need to withhold as part of Lent so that we can stop our hunger, as if we're going to stop having it. But we know that the temptation will be there, and we want God to, to make something of it. Maybe even a little more hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. I mean, it's just a small you know, shift for me over the last year came in just like how I snack. Um, I love snack foods, and I love savory ones. Okay, so that's it's a little bit about me. Uh, I like nuts just fine, but I prefer them when they're like just piled on with salt, right? Or some kind of funky seasoning. I like spicy stuff. So if it's like spicy nuts, you know, you're starting to really just be like, this is more and more appealing. I was hanging out with a friend of mine who just pulled out of her bag some raw almonds. And I looked at him and I was like, like, what is this? Like, are they like, you know, baked in some cool way or like seasoned? She's like, no, they're just like nuts. And I, and I tried some, and I was like, I mean, the texture seems like nuts, but it tastes kind of like, like not a lot. Like it tastes, you know, maybe a little on the soapy side or something like that. Um, and then I don't know how it happened, but less than a year later, I carry raw almonds around with me. And if I'm hungry, that's what I snack on. Because I just figured at some point, I was like, this is just going to have more good stuff and less bad stuff. And if I need to eat something then I'm going to try to eat something that's a little bit better. Then I learned that 80% of the, the world's almonds are produced in monoculture crops in California. So then it just started kind of, I was like, maybe I better just eat potato chips instead, you know, something more, <laughs> something more ethical. <clears throat> but, um, but you can develop a taste for something that is a little bit healthier, both in, in food and, and spiritually, but it does require some practice and it requires some open minds and it requires some kind of motivation. If you take, so that's like a personal level, right? And, and as I, we're relating all together level, just consider the appetites of the voracious environment destroyers. The appetite to consume the world. It's a major problem for us right now to solve. Do we, do I need to do a lot of convincing about that, or can we just keep it, keep it rolling? Okay. You want to convince a little bit? Okay. Here here would be one way. So Eastern Shore Natural Gas on March 15th is going to propose an expansion of their pipeline system for how they're going to get natural gas to Philadelphia. So the on March 15th, it's a big day for the people who are resisting fracking in our watershed because the Delaware River Basin Commission is going to have their actual meeting. Now, here's what it says on the, you probably can't read the text on Eastern Shore Natural Gas's website, but this is what it says. 
Eastern Shore Natural Gas Company, serving the natural gas transportation needs of the Delaware Peninsula since 1959. Natural gas is safe, reliable, efficient, and economical. Though its underground pipeline, or excuse me, through its underground pipeline facilities, Eastern Shore Natural Gas Company is dedicated to transporting this domestic fuel source safely, reliably, and responsibly throughout the Delaware Peninsula. With over half a century of experience, local natural gas distribution companies, electric power generator, and industrial users can count on Eastern Shore to meet and exceed their natural gas transportation needs. Sounds like one of those commercials that the corn syrup companies do where they say corn, you know, doctor, uh, some random doctor said that corn sugar is just like regular sugar and it doesn't have anything wrong with it. You know, to talk about, you know, PA natural gas and one of the key things that they don't mention in PA natural gas is fracking, right? That caused an earthquake two weeks ago. You know, they don't mention what happens with fracking fluid. They don't mention what happens when the drilling companies go and, you know, displace poor people or coerce them into selling their land. I mean, there's so many um, environmental problems besides, but the, to just do this spin job, so why? So it's sweeter when it goes down to say like, you know what, I mean, natural gas does sound better and it does sound better that it's domestic. It has all these things that speak to our fears and that, that it can meet and exceed all of our transport needs. I love that because I need to get around whenever I want to. And I need to, you know, keep my home exactly the temperature that I want it to be. I need to make my shower hot immediately for as many times as I want because I have these basic needs and I want them to, to take care of that for me. The, the, another plan that's coming with some of the um, egregious environmental destroyers who are making record profits has to do with the energy hub. That is, you know, a way to take, I mean, fracking is a big thing, but other extraction industries and how to make them come through Philadelphia where they can get transported outward. And a lot of it is where it can get you know, transformed through processes that create tons of pollution, but it also creates jobs. And our current president's idea for jobs, a lot of those uh, local jobs have to do with extraction and environmental degradation. But it does produce jobs. There are good things that come from it, right? It's not like it's just like, hey, let's just go and uh, destroy the planet and everybody's on board with it. That's not the situation. It appeals to our hunger. It appeals to our appetites. The problem is not with companies that destroy life only. It's in the appetite of very well-meaning people, tens of millions of them, who require maintenance of their, the, the, they require the maintenance of their lifestyle. We do not want to change the way we live. We want to drive anytime we want. We don't want any restriction to it. We want to be able to have any kind of car we want. We want no restriction to it. Same thing with hot water, heat, right? We can go on. You, the ways that we get our construction materials, the ways that we get our clothes, the ways that foods that are out of season get to us, as long as we, as tens of millions of people, not just us in this room, require this catastrophic lifestyle to continue, there will be these companies that make a profit on it. Is this going overboard or can I do one more? Because when you talk about that, one more, you're like, keep going all day. This is, this is what I need for my life. My spirituality is so strengthened when I feel bad. Uh, you know, the fast fashion is, is the second largest you know, environmental polluter. And it's, uh, 
back when we had an environmental protection agency, they said that in 2012, 84% of unwanted clothes in the United States went to a landfill. Now, that you can't keep up with the amount that's being produced and the amount that's being bought. But we can't just blame H&M or blame Forever 21 and say, these companies need more responsible practices because it comes back to being enculturated and perpetuating a culture that is led around by our appetites. We're led around by our appetites for new things all the time, especially ones that are cheap to us. And, and this connects to one of the wise sayings that we've connected over the years. It's not about just um, feeling right or feeling righteous or seeing a problem and having to, uh, to accept it, but we're obliged to speak out against unjust laws and practices that oppress people and ruin creation. We're not coming from, from that kind of space of like, wow, th thank God we know Jesus, therefore we, we have no problematic behaviors. You know, or, or that we haven't had them in the past. Stopping like buying fast fashion right now does not make you righteous. Most of us did it for decades. And you, you stopping buying that stuff actually doesn't pay that girl any more money. So you didn't, we, don't, we didn't figure out how to solve that issue. It, it requires uh, community building and mass movements of God and God's people to bring, bring back God's shalom. But if you think that you'll achieve rightness, if you try hard enough or pick up enough good practices, this is where Lent becomes really helpful. Because fasting alone or just withholding or just changing some bad patterns doesn't actually heal you. It doesn't actually heal the people on the other end and it doesn't actually heal the earth. Although, it's a really good start. So please do healthy practices. However, you can, there's some soul work that we get to do. There's some soul work Jesus was doing when he was hungry that had more to do with Jesus saying, I'm just not going to eat. And that figuring out that piece for you today is part of your spiritual work. Figuring out what that piece is for us is part of our spiritual work. Jesus situated himself with the oppressed people as an oppressed person, as a, as a choice, and that was the lifestyle that Jesus chose to maintain and continues to. He wasn't just telling people they were wrong. He was helping people work for the health of the whole community and for creation. Like the prophet Isaiah spoke about people taking one day a week to look holy. When it came down to chapter 58, the, the true fasting that God was prophesying through Isaiah had to do with breaking bonds of oppression, of setting captives free so that the light of the when let me I'll just read some of it it's it's kind of, kind of long but check out Isaiah 58 if you haven't in a while this is verse 7 is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear quickly. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. It's the presence of God, the obviousness of God. The glory of God, I think, is the obviousness of God, where you're just like, okay, that's making some kind of sense, and we're having some restored balance and relationships. Where are you feeling bound up to? Maybe it's some of those systems, or where does your appetite bind you up? 
What kind of tunnel vision does your appetite cause you to have where you do not see who else it affects? Is it just fast fashion or does it have to do with, you know, food and addiction to GMOs or, or the ways that our tax dollars are used for war making? And fasting might be even considering what kinds of practices could ease their hold on you and what kind of conversations does that bring up? And where is the, that spiritual work in each of us doing some of, those, doing some of that dot connecting? Lent isn't just a time to fast to try to get holier, but it's a time to be transformed and even let our hunger be transformed into the teacher and to show hope in the world for God's reality that's coming in. And there were so many beautiful expressions of this, even though even through the last week, where people were speaking to these hungers for this appetite for a perceived order without knowing at whose expense it comes. The appetite for security. Um, one of the, the our um, events team had another first Friday art opening. Did anybody make it to that? What, I heard one little, mm-hmm, but I think other people were there, right? Okay, cool. I heard there a big yeah. It was one of the it was one of the ones that like for some people is low art because it's kids. We do at least two kids shows per year. And for some people, you know, kids art isn't that good. And I kind of respect your critique. They're not refined yet. However, finding ways to build bridges with uh, local schools or like after-school programs like this one at Moffitt Elementary is the Abu Stan Seeds of Culture. It's the Arab after-school program where we can um, celebrate the art not just of any old kids, but it's particularly Arab kids, a lot of them are immigrants and a lot of them are Muslim. And to, to make friends and to just say, wow, you're, what you made is good and your music is awesome. Please keep drumming and playing music and making art. We need more people like that in the world. One of our compassion teams, Circle Mobilizing, because Black Lives Matter, they held several viewings of the documentary 13th. Did anybody make it to those? Okay, mostly not. Maybe you've seen it. It's on Netflix. It's a lot. It's highly influenced by Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and, you know, exposing systems of mass incarceration that most people just go through their life allowing to speak for them. Um, They had a meeting today where they're uh, planning this thing on Tuesday that you hear more about, this opportunity to to do some some face-to-face dialogue around the lessons that we learned from Drew Hart's book, The Trouble That I've Seen. On uh, earlier today, the Compassion Corps met, and folks that are strategizing for how to keep us thinking about this uh, this church culture, where we can know that compassion and work is happening all the time. We're connected to it, and we can feel good about it, and feel okay talking about it. There was yesterday where there was the the Lent Day retreat that got you know, capped because only so many people, you can actually do a retreat together before it just turns into like lecture, seminar kind of thing. And um, there was tons of people who unfortunately got turned away. Sorry if that was you. On Wednesday, when we, all of the congregations gathered for Ash Wednesday observances where we got to burn things that symbolize their own frailty and be marked with, with the ashes from last year's Palm Sunday 
It's a powerful time, especially for folks who haven't done it before. And there are some people that told me that this was like the 10th year that they've been part of Circle of Hope and they put it on their calendar every year and they're like, I'm never missing that. And it, which I think is admirable. And even before then, there was the, the Mardi Gras dance party where people ate buttloads of donuts and, and danced. And um, there was Sama drumming. And Monday, the Sunday meeting teams met to even just consider how our meetings can have more, um, more art, more flow, more spiritual connective tissue. All of those different activities of, you know, the church did more in the last week, but all of those things speak to these, these different hungers that we feel and make opportunities for God to touch them, to transform them into good, healthy teachers for us. And I hope that even in the, this next week, as you're walking through Lent and doing it together, that you can get a hold of that hunger and let it become something and don't just cave to it or feel damned by it. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect tab at circleofhope.net.